Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. listeners this is friday before the election that we're recording this to give everyone an idea of what was happening that day uh how close we were to the election we all know that news stories break every day so we're going to push this thing out uh faster than ever And, and yet there will probably be breaking stories before then so this is friday about midday uh, early afternoon Eastern time that we're recording. And we've been talking about doing a kind of Joe Biden analysis, uh, overall take on his record, uh, as well as his foreign policy in particular, but also some domestic stuff, and then give some thoughts on the election. This is a highly polarizing topic. When we did something similar on Bernie, uh, that was during the primary, and that was polarizing. I mean, the fact that we critiqued him at all was really upsetting to some of the, you know, some of the Bernie bros, which I hate that phrase, but some of the people who are really loyalists to Bernie. And then when we overall had a very positive take, which, you know, I think that uh, Henry and I make pretty clear how we feel about Bernie, and it's relatively positive, it's quite positive. Uh, you know, obviously, the people on the right uh, had the feeling that, you know, we are, you know, utter socialists, probably hate America and uh, sleep on a volume of Marx and or Lenin. And I would always make sure that I let our listeners know, and our critics, listen, I am not the kind of person, and Henry, I don't know where you're at. I am not the kind of person who would sleep on an old, dusty volume of Lenin. It's Trotsky that I sleep on. Okay, so get that right next time. I think it's important. Anyway, I think the Biden episode that we're doing here is probably going to be a little more polarizing for a number of reasons. There is a civil war that has been ongoing uh, since the primaries, but particularly in the recent months leading up to the election. And it's a civil war within the left, which is uh, typical because this is like the 17th civil war within the vague left, you know, probably since 9-11. And there's probably been about 300 uh, since the 20th century began because the left eats its own, right? The left is particularly divided. It is uh, very, very much the cancel culture in the left has existed long before that word was termed. And it's, I think, partly because there is a sense of litmus tests and purity tests, and there's a lot of really strongly held principled people. And I'm sure there are in the right, too, even though I'm a little less familiar with some of the intricacies of that division. But, you know, the left does this. Uh, What you have today 
is a situation uh, in many circles and in all establishment media, all, every ounce of it, where there is a very narrow band of permissible discussion surrounding Biden and his record. And so what if you criticize Biden telling the truth, playing the video, we're going to play about 10 today, uh, you obviously secretly have a MAGA hat that you wear in the mirror and take selfies with. And that's just really dangerous talk, uh, partly because it sets up the duopoly. It sets up lesser than evil voting uh, into eternity, which we've essentially always had. I mean, very rare that people are excited about a candidate in the Democratic Party, very rare that the base is excited about him when they are in the case of George McGovern in 1972. Uh, you know, he gets blown out. And then all the lessons that are taken from that just reinforce that we can't have anyone that we're excited about. We have to go back to our corner and think about what we've done and put an adult in the room in charge that we don't really like, but we need a responsible person, right? This is what we're told. Uh, we can't be trusted in the base to pick a candidate. Uh, I think that's dangerous. And I think the second thing that's dangerous is on Inauguration Day, assuming that Biden wins, and the same was true of Obama, and the same was true of Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter before that, it is very important to hold this individual's feet to the fire. So if you are a Biden supporter uh, because you think Trump is a monster and he is, and you think that that's the best option, and maybe you even think that we can't afford four more years of Trump, which Chomsky has said, that Tom Engelhart said to me on the phone yesterday, and, uh, and a whole lot of people, including Cornell West. So there's a lot of people who believe that, and there's some serious arguments in that favor. But even if you are that person, I think it's dangerous to suppress truth, to suppress record, to suppress even current policy statements and positions simply because someone is worse. And so I think that what we're setting up here is uh, probably likely to be a, an episode that's going to upset some folks. And, and that's, that's okay. I mean, that's okay. But at the same time, I think we are probably going to upset some folks who are on maybe the alt-left consensus to the extent that one even exists. And what I mean is uh, you will probably hear things from both Henry and I that are, if not laudatory of Biden, are admitting that there are areas where he has been better than many, right? Better than many within the establishment wing of his party on certain issues. And I think that in some cases that was particularly true during the Obama administration. Uh, not to say that his positions were, you know, exactly uh, what we might have liked, but that there was a softening role that Biden played. And so I think we're going to try to give him a fair shake uh, to the extent that that's ever possible. I mean, not to go straight uh, postmodern, but, the, you know, the objectivity is a is a difficult, difficult thing. But we're going to try. And, you know, the the thing about that first point that I made about uh, suppressing truth uh, does involve this gr Glenn Greenwald story, I think. OK, so so Glenn Greenwald uh, resigns, uh, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, so Thursday from which is the 29th of October from The Intercept, which he founded. Right. Um and that is disturbing to begin with, uh, 
But there was one quote from Matt Taibbi, who uh, we love. And uh, Matt, come on the show. You're not listening, but uh, we're going to get you. Okay, I'm I'm coming for you. We uh, I've been a fan for a long, long time, um, and, and we we all have. And he wrote a piece about the Glenn Greenwald resignation. And I just want to read this very short two sentence paragraph. And he says that the first hint of trouble came when Betsy Reed, who is a a senior editor over at The Intercept, suggested that, yes, uh, this story that uh, Glenn Greenwald wanted to publish about the New York Post's commentary on Biden's family connections to a variety of foreign, uh, you know, corporations, uh, economic interests. Uh, So the first hint of trouble came when Betsy Reed suggested that, yes, it might be a story if proven correct, but, quote, Even if it did represent something untoward about Biden, that would, quote, represent a tiny fraction of the sleaze and lies Trump and his cronies are oozing in every day. I want to deconstruct that. I'm not going to spend a whole episode on it. We could. But think about what she's saying there. She's saying that now permissible truth, right, permissible, accurate stories if that is in fact what they are proven to be, are not really, uh, are based on how they relate to how bad someone else is. In other words, that's a terrible way I just put it. It is only permissible to tell a story if Trump or some other monster isn't worse. Because we can't say untoward things about Biden or anybody else, insert Hillary, insert Obama, insert the next one, right, uh, that we're told we have to vote for, uh, Because if it only represents a fraction of the sleaze and lives of somebody else, Trump or whatever the heck comes after him, when we cut the head off the Trump snake and we get the ISIS version of Trump, although he may already be ISIS, but whatever, uh, if they're oozing just as much, I'm sorry, if they're oozing much more sleaze and lies, then we we really shouldn't focus on that story. I think that's extremely dangerous. It proves that the media, military, industrial, consulting complex is creating truth crafting truth and they don't always do it they don't even need to do it through straight up orwellian means it doesn't have to be state suppression it can be a different kind of discipline a different kind of narrowing of the bounds of permissible debate by controlling access access to who gets invited on the shows access to which stories are available and get published and so it's sort of a, a more creative way that's a little less overtly Orwellian of manufacturing truth and consent, as Chomsky said it. And I think that's dangerous. So long intro to say that that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Uh, overall, in a very brief blurb for me, uh, I think that Biden's record, particularly on foreign policy, but also on race, crime and social justice, has been a nightmare, a nightmare as a senator. I think that with a few exceptions, which must be noted and we will, he has been a center-right Republican in the 80s, um, maybe even a a relatively hard-right one earlier on. So I think that what I'm saying is most of Biden's positions would have been considered far to the right of Dwight Eisenhower Republicans, right? They, they weren't even that far off of Reagan Republicans, 
And I think that Biden has proven time and again that he, in many cases, is the poster boy for the Democrat dilemma. And the Democrat dilemma is that they are afraid to look soft, weak, wusses on foreign policy. And so they overcompensate their insecurity by always tacking right. And what happens is the Republicans attack them anyway. And so that's what I think about his record. And I think that we would be remiss if we don't mention it. That being said, in some cases, he has improved in certain areas as he's grown older and particularly in his position as vice president, which in many cases is like an advisory role, right, if it has a role at all. And he did have a pretty big foreign policy portfolio in the Obama administration. He was picked because he was a safe choice. He was picked by Obama despite only polling at maybe 2% in that primary, not because he was the second or third most popular Democratic candidate in 2008, but because he was considered strong on foreign policy, which was considered a blind spot and a weakness for Obama. But in that role, he was given a pretty large portfolio uh, that made, you know, that was aligned with why he was chosen. In some cases, he was better than the Hillary Hawks in the administration. And I think that we are going to demonstrate that in some cases he was better. So the guy has a mixed record. I think that overall it's been negative. And the question becomes, who will Biden be on January 21st? The signals in his record are negative. Some of the signals from his recent statements are negative. However, he does have a fired up base of progressives who are moving left. And it will be interesting to see the degree to which it is permitted to hold his feet to the fire and hopefully tack him left the way some of the optimistic statements from, say, Elon Omar or Elizabeth Warren have hoped he will. So that's my initial take. We'll get into a lot more detail. Henry, if you want to give us uh, something similar, my guess is less verbose. And then after that, we'll jump into uh, clips before closing out the show by giving our final you know, you'll probably listen to this on, say, uh, Sunday or Monday, uh, our final thoughts uh, before the election. And uh, stand by for that. It should be interesting. So like the episode we did about Bernie, this is not uh, certainly shouldn't be as something empirical. Um, we're certainly going to fo- focus on uh, foreign foreign policy, um, especially the stuff that, that really stands out to us. Um there isn't a ton on Biden's domestic policy, although that is much more well-known than things we're going to talk about today. Um, but we do have a couple clips on some different things for his domestic policy. And as Danny said, you know, it, it's it's very clear what the, the overall, you know, looking at it one, one shot that he has a long, long way to go and probably won't, is, is certainly not to our anti-war expectations would ever get there. But just because we don't like the we don't like the reality that something presents and where we are in the election, which again is five days away, we still need to talk about these things. We can't pretend that they're that they're not important, that they don't show Joe Biden in all of his um, completeness as a politician. Um, I'm going to take some time today, a little bit later, and talk about uh, Biden's son Bo and uh, his time in the military and his ultimate death um, because I think it's very instructive about what we may end up seeing as far as 
big moves towards additional wars going to invade somebody else. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, Danny, um, connected to the Glenn Greedwald story, who I would so love for us to have on the podcast sometimes, sometime. Um, Glenn briefly but very powerfully mentioned Reality Winner as a part of his uh, letter that he shared with everybody. Um, there has been um, a good amount of evidence over time, both in the news and from um, any war people I trust, that there are serious, serious messed up questions about how the Intercept handled Reality Winner and everything that happened with her becoming a whistleblower. Um, almost uh, arguably to the extent that they burned her, um, in addition to many other mistakes and glaring errors for an organization that was ostensibly started to be um, a a leftist answer to those kind of stories, to be a bastion for whistleblowers, which it is not. Um, so stand by for more on that. I'm definitely going to cover that in a uh, a future episode. Um, and I think, uh, that's all I got for the moment. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into clips and, uh, to kind of give an idea to the listeners, what we're going to do is, um, we're going to play some clips from a variety of, uh, topics, uh, throughout Biden's career, really, really running the, the gamut from, uh, from the eighties, right. Um, if not before, we're going to start with foreign policy and start with uh, Iraq, uh, a clip uh, before the war uh, and then uh, just after the war, uh, demonstrating uh, Biden's not only complicity, but, but early cheerleading before he turned against the war. And the reason we're front loading Iraq is because and, and doing three short clips from Iraq is because we believe, as I think honestly any rational uh, sentient being ought to that the greatest disaster in 21st century and then arguably uh, since Vietnam, American foreign policy disaster was the decision to invade Iraq. And so I think that it would be uh, a total uh, a total instance of being remiss not to focus on that, uh, particularly because Trump played so strongly and garnered support by his own kind of mis, uh, you know, misleading sense that he'd always been against the war. But nevertheless, it resonated. Uh, it helped him get elected in some of the counties and swing states where the most casualties in that war had occurred. So uh, I think this is important. So, yeah, Henry, let's uh, let's start off with uh, the first clip. And then um, if you want to give you, you know, we'll have you'll give the first thoughts on it. Uh, on each clip and then uh, and then I'll kind of bring down the house and move to the next one. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, just a quick note for this first clip. It is from a video that was produced by the Real News Network called Worth the Price. And uh, we did, we're only playing a very short portion of it here, but it includes Larry Wilkerson and Matt Ho, and it's uh, narrated by the great Danny Glover. Um, it will be linked in the show notes, and there are more clips of Biden in that one video that we're not covering in this. So it's a good additional background if you'd like to take a look at it. So when it uh, when the episode drops, all right. Here is clip number one. In my judgment, 
President Bush is right to be concerned about Saddam Hussein's relentless pursuit of weapons of mass destruction and the possibility that he may use them or share them with terrorists. Other regimes hostile to the United States and our allies already have or seek to acquire weapons of mass destruction. This was Joe Biden in 2002, speaking as chair of the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. A few months later, when the Senate was debating whether to give President George W. Bush the authority to start a war with Iraq, Biden argued strongly in favor of granting this authority. The objective is to compel Iraq to destroy its illegal weapons of mass destruction and its programs to develop and produce missiles and more of those weapons. Saddam is dangerous. The world would be a better place without him. But the reason he poses a growing danger to the United States and its allies is that he possesses chemical and biological weapons and is seeking nuclear weapons. And unlike uh, my, uh, my colleague from West Virginia and Maryland, I do not believe this is a rush to war. I believe it's a march to peace and security. I believe that failure to overwhelmingly support this resolution is likely to enhance the prospects that war will occur. Joe Biden did so much more than vote for the war. Um, he was the chair of the powerful Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and he really used his control over that committee to make sure that a majority of the U.S. Senate voted to authorize the war. And that, that's a very serious thing. Uh, it's questionable whether the, the authorization to start the war could have even passed Congress without all that Biden did to get it approved. So he really did play a major role um, in bringing us into the Iraq War, a terrible, terrible war. And this was much more responsibility. Um, he, he bears much more responsibility uh, than many other senators who simply voted for it. Of course, the statement about chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons were false. Uh, and many experts already concluded this at the time of the Senate hearings, but Biden didn't allow these experts to testify. That's really significant. Um, as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, Biden was able to control the Senate debate on the war. And therefore, much of the information that most senators received and that major media outlets uh, reported uh, was, was really distorted. There were other Democrats in the Senate who wanted to put limits on Bush's ability to start a war in Iraq. For example, if there was no imminent threat to the United States and the United Nations did not authorize a war, then President Bush would have to come back to Congress for another resolution. But Biden shot this down. So the reason why I oppose the amendment of my friend from Michigan is because the basic premise upon which I began is consistent with where my friend from, from Connecticut begins, and that is that the threat need not be imminent for us to take action. That's authority we're about to delegate to the president. During the initial lead-up to beginning the war in Iraq, there were a few very key people that made it possible. President Bush, obviously, um, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, um, military leaders like Tommy Franks. Um, but Joe Biden's actions uh, demonstrated in this clip show that from the very beginning, he was manufacturing consent to make it happen. Um, the, the most gratuitous of which um, was his refusal to allow 
um, ostensibly anti-war voices to be a part of the hearings that he held. Um, uh, Scott Ritter was uh, one of those people. Um, and uh, there were even Republican senators on, uh, Scott, excuse me, Scott Ritter, the uh, former UN weapons inspector um, from the Clinton era. You know, I, I think that Danny Glover's voice and, um, and some of the other, others like commenting in the video are so important. We have to remember that Joe Biden has long been far more interested, you know, made foreign policy uh, a much bigger aspect of his Senate career than most. I mean, he was in and out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, including chairing it in many cases. And so his campaign uh, pronouncements in 08 and then especially in 16, uh, in, in 2020, I should say this year, that he was opposed essentially from the start, right? Or at least once the war kicked off is, um, is really, really nefarious. I mean, it's, it's, it's a blatant lie because not only is, is he wrong in the way that many other folks like Hillary and, and um, John Kerry who voted for it have been wrong to kind of position themselves as having, you know, been opposed before they were, but he's not only blatantly lying about that, but he's understating his actual role, which was as shepherder of this war, the one who made it palatable who forced it down the throats in many cases of his fellow Democrats, uh, which was a decisive move. And also that he was a, a cheerleader for the war, even after, as we'll see in the next clip, even after it begins. And it's important to note that there were other voices within the Democratic Party um, who were opposed to the war, some of whom, I think 22, uh, who actually voted against it, regardless of the pressure coming from Biden. But this was a classic case of that Democrat dilemma, wanting to look tough. And I think that one of the great heroes of the run-up to the Iraq War was uh, a guy named Robert Byrd, who was a old-school, problematic past. I believe he was a member of the Klan in West Virginia early in his life, uh, briefly. Um, but he gave a speech to a, a basically empty chamber, right? And an empty Senate floor. Uh, when he said on the, basically when they were getting ready to vote in October of 2002 to give a blank check really to president Bush to invade Iraq, he said uh, that there, you know, this chamber, right? This chamber is for the most part silent, ominously, dreadfully silent. There is no debate, no discussion, no attempt to lay out for the nation the pros and cons of this particular war. We stand passively mute in the United States Senate, paralyzed by our own uncertainty, seemingly stunned by the sheer turmoil of events. And this is no small conflagration we contemplate this is no simple attempt to defang a villain. No, this coming battle, if it materializes, represents a turning point in U.S. foreign policy. That sounds like something I would write today, 18 years later, if I was writing historical fiction about the Iraq war lead up and I needed a heroic character to predict what was going to happen. I would write that. But that's what he actually said. And no one really noticed. And so the point is, there were alternative 
voices to Biden. There were folks in the Democratic Party who uh, took a, a courageous stand and who believed something incredibly different and chose not to fall into the Democratic dilemma and, uh, and chose to take a stand and even predicted that this wouldn't be a small thing. This wouldn't be a small defanging regime change of a villain. In fact, it would be a turning point in U.S. foreign policy. And of course it was. We live in a post-Iraq invasion world. We live in the world that the Iraq invasion created, and it is a world of regional chaos from West Africa, from Morocco to Pakistan, to Central and South Asia. And we cannot forget the apology that America deserves from Biden, which we really have yet to get, as far as I can tell. All right, here's the next clip. So this clip, everybody, is from July, late July of 2003. Uh, So now we're talking four months after the ground invasion, when the insurgency, particularly in Baghdad and Anbar, has begun to kick off. I mean, it's, 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 it's going on. It is clear this is a mess and that Americans are dying by ones, twos, and threes, like on the daily. And so this is going to undercut his argument that once the war started, he turned against it right away. So remember, this is July of 03 at the Brookings Institution, one of the polite imperialist think tanks. War has yet to dawn. We are still at war. American soldiers are still being killed, one, two, and three at a time. Iraq is still not secure. Still, no one holds our troops to the, at this point, no one has told our troops that what we have always known, we've known from this time last year, that they would have to stay there in large numbers for a long period of time. and that they're going to have to tough it out. Most Americans still don't realize that it's costing us a billion dollars a week just to keep our troops in Iraq, and billions more in reconstruction will be needed, and that the revenue from Iraqi oil will not come close, will not come close to meeting those needs in the next three to five years. What I think is so interesting about a lot of this is what Biden's, because this speech, you know, as we'll see as we go along, is somewhat critical of Bush, but only in the vaguest way. So what he's saying is, um, I wish the, uh, the president would be more honest with the American people about what we're really in for. So Biden, remember, just uh, five months before is saying that essentially that this is, you know, he's agreeing to some extent with the neocons that this can be done relatively easily. I mean, he certainly doesn't think it's going to go as bad as it already had by July of 03, which was not even the half of it, of course, by the time, you know, like I arrived in late 2006 when the place was a monstrosity and you know, 70 soldiers died in Baghdad alone sometimes in a month. Uh, it wasn't even that bad, but it was a mess by July of 03. And it was clear the writing was on the wall. And what Joe's saying is he thinks he's this like voice of like sobering realism. And he, but he, his position is not that we should now leave based on the facts on the ground, but that we need to settle in for a tough, long fight. He's kind of like rallying the troops, but in the most unmotivating way, he's saying, now we need to almost double down. We need to settle in for the long haul. And, you know, they're going to have to, quote, tough it out. 
the troops are going to have to tough it out. It's like, Joe, you made this happen. You, you, you collaborated uh, with the neocons to make this happen. And now you're telling us we have to settle in for billions of dollars, turned out to be trillions, uh, for billions of dollars and, uh, uh, you know, enough blood to fill a, a stadium, American blood, and forget about the Iraqi blood that can fill a small city. That, that there's really something just grotesque about this speech. And I think that what makes it particularly bad is that he's misrepresented time and again ever since, and especially in the 2019-20 primary and general election campaigns that we're commenting on now. It's, it's really, it's, it's a terrible terrible clip and it, it, it does make me question his judgment and it raises questions about what he will do in a similar situation in the future i would like to think that he like many americans actually learned some lessons from what ended up happening in iraq and some of his positions afterwards where he did start to oppose say the surge and talk about partitioning iraq which is a whole other thing to get into and its own flaws. But, you know, in the short term, he definitely did pivot soon after this. Okay. But remember that even when it became clear that American boys and girls were being, you know, killed on the daily, uh, and it was clear that this was going to be a real, real quagmire, or at least a, a real maelstrom that he, you know, even at that point, he wasn't ready to back out. And we'll see what his justification for that was, which is really obscene in this next clip. Yeah, the t- the tough it out line is 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 very very insulting to me, and I wonder if he were shown this clip today, following the passing of his son, would he still use such insulting language about the troops having to tough it out? Because Danny, as as you know and I know that toughing it out is the entirety of being in the military. It it point to the tough part you can't it's all tough it's all hard it's all weighing down on you whether you're deployed or or back home because we we bring the home the war home with us but i i would hope that he would be um less presumptive today after seeing what his son went through and knowing that it was very much probably connected to his service yeah, that's the that's the big question before we start here, and I, and I, I want to keep it in mind. You know, we're not just trying to tear down Biden. The big question is how much he learned and how he would respond in the future. And, and all we can do is speculate. But um, as 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 really disturbing as this is, and I think we we are doing the right thing by reminding folks um, that is to say that if you believe that Biden is a better choice than Trump and uh, I mean, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I admit that I'm, I, even I'm inclined to believe that, um, given some of just the monstrosity of Trump, especially at home, but also abroad. If you're inclined to believe that Trump, Biden's the better option, I just think that the key thing is like, don't like Cornell West said, don't tell lies about him. Like, like he says, vote for Biden, but don't tell lies about him. Well, I think if you don't have this video in your head on January 20th, 21st, then, uh, then you know you're, you're in a bad situation. So let's hear what he has to say. His justification for why we have to tough it out, and specifically that securing Iraq will cost billions of American dollars, require tens of thousands of American troops for an extended period of time, and that it's worth it. That it is worth it, and most importantly, 
that it's our national interest to stay the course, a view that I strongly hold. Some of my own party have said that it was a mistake to go to Iraq in the first place and believe that it's not worth the cost, whatever benefit may flow from our engagement in Iraq. But the cost of not acting against Saddam, I think, would have been much greater. And so is the cost, and so will be the cost, of not finishing this job. The President of the United States is a bold leader, and he is popular. The stakes are high, and the need for leadership is great. So the troops have to tough it out. Sorry, guys. You might have to get yourself killed 7,000 miles from home for a war that was a lie and that is falling apart. Uh, but that the justification is twofold. Uh, one is ideological, or at least what he pretends is what he believes, which is that the cost is worth it. That is a bold statement. And the second thing he says, and it really turns my stomach, and honestly, no matter Biden could go into office and have the best eight years if he lives that long, ever. Right? He could surprise me on every turn, and I'll be glad. And I'll say so. I don't know that I'll ever be able to forget that clip. You know, this forgive and forget. So maybe I'd forgive at that point. Maybe. Could I ever forget those words? President Bush is a bold leader. Pause. And he is popular. I mean, the inflection, the emphasis there. What is he telling us? The subtext isn't even really subtext. It's pretty overt and in your face. The president is popular. Therefore, we Democrats, because he's speaking to his fellow senators later in the speech, he says, you know, some of my fellow senators say we shouldn't do this, but I disagree because the president's popular, which means, guys, we're Democrats. We live in a dilemma. We've got to be uh, holier and more Catholic than the Pope. We've got to be more militarist than the neocons. If we don't, they'll swift vote us. Well, of course, you know. They swift voted Kerry anyway when he refused to meet with the Iraq veterans against the war, which had modeled themselves on the Vietnam veterans against the war, of which he was a champion in the Winter Soldier hearings, right? So I'm jumping to Kerry, but to give you the idea that don't try to please the Republicans or the right so that thinking that they won't attack you, they're going to attack you anyway. I mean, you could bomb a new country. And they'd be like, oh, you didn't bomb enough. You're a wuss. Let me tell let me tell the American people that you are. So, yeah, I don't know that I'll ever be able to forget that video, um, no matter what happens. But I think it's an important one. And it demonstrates the partisan insider compromises that Biden has made since he entered the Senate as a centrist Re, sort of reactionary Democrat to the liberal turn of the 1960s, the late 1960s. And so it has really defined his career up till he jumped into the vice presidency. So what we're jumping to now is, yeah, fast forward 16 years, right, uh, to this, this, you know, this past winter when we, the Trump administration, assassinates under very dubious legality and ethics and strategy uh the you know one of the most powerful maybe the third most powerful person in their government uh definitely their most popular national figure in many cases and their top general 
the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And the reason that this relates to Iraq is because the outcome, the predictable outcome of invading Iraq was that it did in fact empower Iran, providing a justification for a new cold and who knows sort of hot future and also hot when we are assassinating its generals. Uh, this is Biden talking about the Soleimani assassination, but keep in mind, it's not talked about enough. Where was Soleimani assassinated? Not in Tehran, not even in Lebanon, visiting with Hezbollah, in Baghdad, which draws that direct line between the invasion of March 2003 and the world we live in today. Again, we live in a world shaped by the Iraq invasion so much that anecdotally, that in what is actually happening, we are now in a situation where we assassinate Iranian top leaders in Baghdad. Okay, so this connects. And so let's see what he had to say about the Soleimani assassination. I hope the administration, I pray the administration has thought through the second and third order consequences of what they have chosen. Let's be clear. Soleimani, General Soleimani, was the architect of uh, behind the slaughter of countless lives in the region. The deaths of U.S. troops are on his hands, and no American mourns his passing. He deserves to be brought to justice. He deserved to be brought to justice for his crimes. But no matter how rightly reviled he was in the West, he was a senior figure of the Iranian government. And there's no doubt that Iran will, in fact, respond. Unfortunately, nothing we have seen from this administration over the past three years suggests that they have prepared to deal with the very real risk we now confront. And there's no doubt the risks are greater today because of the actions Donald Trump has taken walking away from diplomacy, walking away from international agreements, relying on threats of force. We don't have the kind of risk and provocation cycle when the nuclear deal was still in place, but it exists now. Our administration said the goal, the goal of maximum pressure was to deter regional aggression negotiate a better nuclear deal. Thus far, they have badly failed on both accounts. Now the administration has said the goal of killing Soleimani was to deter future attacks by Iran. But the action almost certainly will have the opposite impact. When the news came down that Soleimani was, was assassinated, the immediate first thought that came into my mind was after knowing that the location, which was at the, the Baghdad airport near the green zone, where our uh, our embassy is and where some of uh, our remaining military assets there are, are stationed, if, if not there, uh, nearby. I was terrified at the thought that not only could American troops have been put in danger by this action, but also Iraqi troops. And that led me to how little, and, and not specifically Donald Trump, but it, well, Donald Trump 
two, how little we care for Iraqi sovereignty, that we involved them, I don't think, in any of it, or if we did, we haven't heard about it in the news. What, what does that really say about how we feel about the Iraqis and how how they're just pawns? I mean, we, we, we look past all the bluster, and, and, and that's one, one conclusion that you can definitely arrive at. Well, definitely. So I think overall, look, some of the stuff that Biden says there is is rational. I mean, about understanding second and third order effects, understanding that this is unlikely to improve the situation, probably will have blowback and consequences, uh, recognizing that it might would not have been necessary. I don't think it was necessary in any case, but that the framework within which this assassination occurred might, you know, it, it may not have been possible or may not have been as likely uh, without Trump pulling out of a nuclear deal with Iran, the JCPOA that was working. And so I think, you know, he, he has, it seems in this clip, um, you know, at least taken the relatively positive establishment critique of the Iraq war and is showing a little more caution. Now he makes some dubious assertions in there um i think he is not necessarily clear about what it means to bring someone to justice um about whether the united states should be in the assassination of foreign governmental figures that we're not at war with business whether we should be in that business uh there's a lot of things he doesn't raise there's a lot of assumptions that he makes and i also think it's more it's not just what about isn't to say well listen complaining about Soleimani having blood on his hands when in the situation where it was opportunistic or necessary, as we saw it for us, to get out of Iraq or to make the, quote, surge work. You know, we were quite happy to align ourselves with Sunni tribes, which included serious resistance fighters and insurgents who had also large amounts of blood on their hands. It's just that those Americans were killed in West Baghdad rather than East Baghdad. And they were killed in, you know, Ambar rather than Najaf and Karbala, because that's where the Sunni tribes live. And so I just think there's a lot of things he doesn't raise there. Overall, I think his assessment, we have to be fair and say, look, it, he's not wrong on all the merits. But what you're pointing out here that, you know, I think is important is that the unspoken and suppressed figure or figures millions of them 20 million of them that are erased that have no agency are the iraqi people and even the iraqi government because keep in mind you know they're not they were they were given a little notice i believe and only some of them and basically when it was happening uh they were not involved we did not think it important to involve the sovereign government of the sovereign state in which we were going to do a third party assassination. That wasn't a priority for us. Right. And we'll say it's because we don't trust them not to leak it. Right. But I, I, re- I reject that in principle on a number of levels. But also the Iraqi government responded to this by saying, please leave by a democratic vote. Remember, we, we were all we're all about parliaments. We love parliaments. We, you know, we'd prefer a Senate and a House. But listen, we'll take representative democracy wherever we can get. It. In fact, we're going to put Jeffersonian democracy right there on the Tigris. That's the plan. That's the mission. 
That's what we were told, right? Because there was no WMDs and it turned out the Al-Qaeda connection wasn't real. So we needed a new mission. So look, the real reason we're in Iraq is to create democracy. Well, we did uh, a flawed one like ours. And when their parliament voted and said, please leave, we would like the American troops to leave. We said, nah, no, not really. Like, yeah, I know you're upset that we did this like utterly sovereign violating assassination that you're going to feel the blowback from Iraqis and Iraqi government as much as we are because you have to live there. But nevertheless, uh, we are going to not leave when you're angry about that. And so it just shows that occasionally American imperialism kicks it pretty old school, right? So we're pretty good at veiling it, especially in like Obama type administrations. We will veil it. We have our polite imperialism or polite empire and applied our emperor to lead it. But occasionally, uh, with some regularity, we will kick it old school because that is old school imperialism to say nah the natives their parliament is like substandard just like their race in fact and their religion and so uh now we've got national interests there so sorry guys like democracy has its limits and where those limits stop is when we don't like the outcomes so yeah I, i think that that's an important point but you know overall i think if there is one area one foreign policy area where I feel more confident, like strongly more confident than on Biden than on Trump is with respect to Iran, uh, because I, I hope that he will decrease some of the pressure there, uh, try to lead back towards something similar to the JCPOA, which is going to be hard to do because Iran no longer trusts us as a fair bargaining or, or negotiating partner. But nevertheless, I, I think that of all the areas, you know, Venezuela, China and Russia, he's just as hard and hawkish as Trump. And sometimes he tries to go to the right of him. But on Iran, I, I hope that he uh, has some more modest, rational and realistic goals. And I, and I think that overall his position on Soleimani there was uh, was a reflection of that. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone who you might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities and inflicts on minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment, pause the episode, share this with them. Now, Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So, let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, 
James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Well, Henry, this is this is one that was really big to you and and to me as well, of course, about um, Hunt, uh, I'm sorry, Bo Biden and uh, his service uh, and uh, the burn pits and and all that. So let, let's jump into the cost of the wars that Biden helped cheerlead and that uh, have been the blowback, the sub wars of the broader Iraq war started in March of '03. I think they play a significant role. Science has recognized there are certain carcinogens that when were, people are exposed to them, depending on the quantities of the mountain, the water, the air, um, can uh, have a carcinogenic impact on the body. There's a book written called Burn Pits, and I was stunned when I read it. It was a lot of hype, and it was advertised, and it was selling. And there's a whole chapter on my son Bo in there. It stunned me. I didn't know that. And this guy went back and looked at Bo's tenure as a civilian with the U.S. Attorney's Office trying to set up a criminal justice a justice system in Kosovo during the Kosovo War, and then his year in Iraq. And he was co-located in both times near these burn pits. And these burn pits where we take everything from fuel oil to plastic furniture to all the waste and put them in these great big pits, and we burn them. And just like we know now, you don't want to live underneath the smokestack where, where uh, carcinogens are coming out of it. We say you got to put a scrubber on. You can't, you can't uh, let this stuff get in the air. But there is yet to be, that I'm aware of, any direct scientific evidence that a particular person came back with a higher incident. There's a lot higher incidence of cancer coming from Iraq now and Afghanistan than in other wars. There's been no direct scientific evidence that I'm aware of yet, but a lot of work's being done. So the burn pits is a, uh, is a difficult subject for me. Um, I believe with, with some evidence, but not certainly not empirically proven that uh, many of my injuries are connected to my exposure to uh, the burn pits. Um, and I think that at this point, it's important and, and instructive in, in terms of Biden's foreign policy to understand a little bit about the path that Bo um, took from returning from Iraq and, and ultimately dying. Um, and so I, I, first I want to, I wanted to make, I made a few notes just about, um, what I would perceive was the, the closeness between Joe Biden and Bo Biden, 
uh, just just to mention it that uh, Bo's real first name is Joseph. He is, uh, and Joe Biden, of course, is actually Joe Biden Jr. So uh, Bo would be Joseph the third if that was the uh, the name that he went by. But just a little note there. Um, both of them attended the same high school. They attended the same college, and they attended the same law school. Um, before Bo uh, joined the military, he helped uh, create a new criminal court sim- system in Kosovo, um, helping to train judges and prosecutors there. Um, he joined the army, um, I think it was 05 or 06, or I can't remember the date, uh, but uh, he joined the army as a, a JAG officer, judge advocate general, a, a lawyer in the, in the military. Um, and it just so happened that his pre-deployment period to Iraq coincided with the 2008 Obama campaign. And during his one vice presidential debate that year, uh, Joe said, I, I don't want him going, but I'll tell you what, I don't want my grandson or my granddaughters to have to go back in 15 years. And so how we leave makes a big difference. Um, Bo, at the time of his deployment, he was uh, working as the the Attorney General of Delaware. Um, He remained Attorney General while he was on deployment, leaving most tasks to his deputies. Um, He got to see his father twice during his deployment, not including any uh, leave time that he was granted. Um, He attended the 09 inauguration, and uh, he also got a visit from his dad in Baghdad later in his deployment. Now, I I mentioned that because getting any kind of extra trip home outside of leave on a deployment is exceptionally rare. Um, I came home, I got to come home three times on my second tour, but two of them were to testify in a court-martial. Um, I had never ended up actually testifying, um, and I, you know, I didn't have any choice to the coming or going, but I did get to spend some time with my family that other guys didn't. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's worth noting. Bo became ill within eight months of his return from Iraq, and he died um, five years to the month from his return from Iraq. Now, my own injuries, which I've, I've discussed a little bit, you know, what they entail on the podcast, they, they didn't develop nearly that quickly. And fortunately, I've, I've never been diagnosed with any kind of cancer. and I've been out of the Army for uh, over 12 years now. Um, I'm still here. Bo, Bo Biden, can't, he can't say that. Um, it's believed that the, the biggest culprit, one of, one of the biggest culprits of contamination that troops have to endure relating to the burn pits is titanium dust. That it becomes because of the process of being burned. And as, as Joe mentioned in the clip, the burn pits, um, everything ended up in there old tires, old batteries, garbage of, of all different kinds. And it was either diesel or jet fuel was used to burn it. Um, when on my second tour, um, I helped burning some, some stuff. Um, we had a, a very small burn pit uh, near our little spot on the camp. And the guys and I would sometimes stand out there like we were at a bonfire and then shoot the shit and such. Um, but it, it's a uh, it's it's a very disgusting and very damaging thing to have to endure. 
It's terribly uncommon these days for politicians to have kids in the military. Only a fifth of U.S. politicians have military experience, and fewer than 1% have kids that are in the military. The fact that Bo chose to serve, uh, chose to be in the military, and probably died from diseases resulting from that time in the military puts Joe Biden in an exceptionally small minority within our political system. Um, there's one more clip that we'll play here in a minute that, that goes to that a little bit more, but um, there are lots of other people, lots of other names that we could mention who are are responsible by and large for getting us into Iraq and keeping us in Iraq. Um, and Joe Biden is one of those people. But he also had real loss connected to his decisions to support the war. And that's regarding a man who has had a huge amount of loss in his life. I'm not condoning or defending his choice uh, to push for the Iraq war, but how many politicians can we say lost a child in a war that they voted for? And given the closeness between uh, Joe and Bo, it seems like a, a very deeply held loss. Yeah, and I, I, I think here it's important to be fair to Joe Biden. I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but I think for all this politicking and for all the things that are unforgivable, he does seem to feel things, right? And I know that that's like a nebulous and hard to quantify sort of uh, sort of thing. But I think that his personal relationships that he develops are, are, are real, right? They're genuine, um, particularly in, in the case of your children. Uh, and it is my hope that although he has sometimes really angered me by using Bo as a way of saying that he shouldn't have to answer for the Iraq war because, you know, he, he knows the cost. He had a son there, which I, I really don't accept. Uh, I do think that it, it had this real effect on him and that he needs to be taken seriously. And we have to really consider that if he learned something from his championing of the Iraq war, um, it is likely that what drives that he's an emotional guy, right? He's, he, he's an emotional, not unlike Bush, he's a, he's a gut player. And from everything I can tell in his record, and uh, that has its real limits, but uh, occasionally there can be some real civil linings about that. And I think in this case, that is that uh, perhaps the, that loss and uh, what was probably behind it largely gives him an idea of the cost of war and even if he won't say it, even if he is a stubborn mule uh, on the trail, that, that maybe something was internalized that, that helps him take a real serious look before committing U.S. troops to another war and putting them in a situation where there's going to be second, third order effects in people's personal lives, right? And Henry, you know a lot about that. I know something about that. And, uh, and I hope that Joe's really learned it. Absolutely. So we got uh, one more one more clip on uh, Joe Biden's foreign policy, and um, he was uh, he was approached at a uh, 
I believe it was at a restaurant um, sometime during the campaign. And I don't I don't know specifically who the person was um, who, who's talking to him here in this clip. Um, but I want to say that they're they're anti-war and that they, you know, feel as strongly as it as as any of us about this topic. And it's the most direct confrontation I think he's had about the war to date. This is a tough clip. This is another one of the ones that I, I can't really forget when I when I see Biden. And so it's kind of hard to hear in the clip because there's a lot of background noise and people yelling at the rally. But essentially, this uh, veteran, I believe, is a has a link to about face veteran against, against the war, which is the old Iraq veteran against the war, basically confronts him as he's like walking out of an event and says, you know, listen, you know, you're disqualified because of your championing of the Iraq war and you know their blood not only of the american soldiers but this vet is very careful and really emphasizes the million iraqis maybe you know we don't know the exact number it's in it's in the million range uh, who have also been killed far more than the you know five thousand ish soldiers uh, american soldiers that died there and uh you know asked him to account for his record and uh joe's just not having it he does not like to be confronted. He becomes kind of a Scranton schoolyard kid, right? Uh, or plays that up, gets his back real up, and immediately pivots to, listen, my son died there too. In other words, like, don't question me on this. And, um, you know, I mean, there's just so many logical fallacies at the root of that because the implication that because of that, you're not to be held accountable is strange. And we would think the opposite might be the case. Uh, and then also Biden's dismissal of this anti-war veteran, I just think was exactly unaligned, right? Out of line with the whole support the troops, no matter what, put them on a pedestal. My son served and all soldiers are heroes, just like he was, you know, until they disagree with me. Right. Until they call out something that's factual in my record, my own responsibility, co-responsibility and serious 
responsibility for this Iraq disaster that uh, that killed the, this veteran's friends, as he mentions. And then also he even says, you know, millions are, are dead. And I think he means Iraqis, of course, in that situation. So this, this was tough. And uh, Joe does not handle those situations well. It concerns me. This is the bad side of being a gut instinctual player uh, that he does not really like to be challenged. And so we uh, have to hope that one of the two Bidens comes out when it's time to make a call about war. Uh, is it the Biden who doesn't want to take responsibility and the Biden who, you know, is often complicit throughout his career in creating these disasters and sanctioning them for political gain or, or because he thinks it'll be a political loss if he does not? Uh, or is it the Biden who it does seem has some serious uh, thoughts and conclusions that have come to him as partly a result of his son's death afterwards, you know, probably involved. So this is really, this is tough. I mean, this is uh, a, a, a rough thing and reminds me that there are like are no adults running the store and that my theory that no one ever becomes an adult and that we're all you know not secretly 17 years old forever is true and that has disturbing implications for the human condition and any political leadership but biden's response there is just utterly immature and dismissive and really raises serious doubts. And so I, I think, like I said, the question is which Biden comes out in any given day. And I, I, I don't feel great about it in every situation, but Biden's bringing up his son isn't necessarily wrong. Had he uh, used that, you know, kind of um, the, that image of his son's loss and the fact that his son served in a different way. Right. Rather than as a way to evade responsibility, evade even discussing things with this uh, this other veteran who may well have seen far more combat than his son. Right. Uh, if his friends died in combat. Right. Given given the different MOSs and different jobs within the army. And, uh, you know, he just used it in a lot of in all the wrong ways. And it was it's really hard to watch. For me, it's a lot like nails on the chalkboard, you know, Captain, you know, Quint. In, in in jaws and it's uh it's really rough and it, it raises some serious questions and again i hope that the uh the better quote-unquote version of biden comes out when he's in his quiet moments uh pondering a future war assuming that he wins there's a a short short segment in there where the veteran mentions um joe biden being the person that gave uh, George W. Bush the Liberty Medal um, back in, I think it was the end of 2018. Um, And I feel like that was an additional, very much could be seen as an additional betrayal um, on his part um, from the point of view, from our point of view, that even after all these years, even after losing his son, he still goes and presents this medal to Bush. Um, while outside, there were members of About Face protesting, um, reminding him. There's even you actually can hear them on some of the videos that have come out from the uh, from that night when that happened. 
Um, but I'll, I'll try to make sure that the, the whole clip is uh, annotated in text so everybody can hear the whole thing because the, the quality wasn't so great. But uh, I just I wanted to point that out. Yeah, and that's an important point. I mean, in one way, it shouldn't surprise us that Biden gave that medal, I believe no. it was in Philadelphia, to uh, to George W. Bush, because this is the same guy who, you know, in July of 2003, as we heard, said that he is a bold president and he is popular, right? And and one of the things that we have seen in so many funny memes, right, that are not funny, they're darkly funny, they're tragic comic, is, you know, when Michelle Obama and Joe Biden and Barack Obama and, like, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, you know, they're like, they're all in the same clan. They may be on the le- the red and the blue team, but they, they, they kind of consort and laugh and enjoy the company of people like George W. Bush, who is the worst president in recent memory by all the merits, right? By all the metrics, I should say, of death, death, global death and American death of soldiers. Um, the last time an American president had that much blood on his hands was Richard Nixon, right? At the end, and when he prolonged the Vietnam War. And Bush getting a pass because he's more polite in his language than Donald Trump it disturbs me. And so what it tells me is that these people really are a clique, if not a cabal. And that tells me that even Biden's learning and improvements to the extent that he's had them, and I think to some extent he does, they are in the box. They stay within a certain framework and they're not, he is not going to cut ties with establishment Republicans. And we see that because report after report is showing us that he is seriously considering a number of Republicans for his potential administration after Tuesday if he wins. And uh, yeah, so you have a progressive base that's more fired up and more progressive than ever. And you're sidelining the Warren and the, and the, and the, and the Sanders faction. And, uh, and you're, and you're probably going to load up uh, more Demo- more Republicans of that establishment, Lincoln brand, right? Lincoln Republicans. You're going to, you're going to put, I will, uh, my prediction is you will see more Lincoln style Republicans in a Biden administration than genuine progressives from the base that puts Biden there. And that tells us all we need to know about the duopoly. And I think that some of the aspects that you're bringing up about speech are just that. So the, the Philadelphia Medal Award ceremony was, uh, was a truly obscene uh, pageantry of a, imperialism. And, uh, and it should be considered that and never forgotten. Well, so as we transition now to... Apartheid, something near and dear to my heart. I love me some Southern Africa, one of my little side interests. And um, Joe has an interesting record there. Uh, It is important to remember that particularly the Democrats, but also many of the Republicans eventually turned on Reagan. Uh, They were latecomers to the game after we supported apartheid South Africa in their utterly, utterly racialized, hyper-racialized state, uh, murder state, uh, death squad, collusion state of white apartheid, Afrikaner apartheid in South Africa. The United States was one of the great uh, complicit external actors that protected South Africa, much like we protect Israel now, uh, until we didn't. 
until a certain tipping point was reached. And that tipping point came in the mid-1980s. And it was largely the Democratic Party that pushed for the sanctions that were, were pretty significant, uh, symbolic, but also real economically, but mostly a very important symbolic move that, that helped, not as much as the Cuban army, by the way, read my article, uh, but helped bring down apartheid. And so it was the Democratic establishment that, that eventually turned and then took almost the Republicans with them. Uh, Joe would see that as one of the great victories of bipartisanship that he has championed for so long. But Joe has an interesting record on apartheid, and, uh, and, and it's not all bad. And I think we're going to listen to a clip and then talk about where he's been on that. And uh, maybe it'll illustrate some things about his broader foreign policy. What disturbs me more than the policy that you call a policy is the rationale for the policy. The rationale for the policy. You set out four principles that you, that you adhere to, and then you, and, and I will go over them in a moment. Then you say on page 14, we must not become part of South Africa's problem. We must remain part of their solution. We must not aim to impose ourselves, our solutions, our favorites in South Africa. Damn it, we have favorites in South Africa. The favorites in South Africa are the people who are being repressed by that ugly white regime. We have favorites. Our loyalty is not to South Africa, it's to South Africans. And the South Africans are majority black, and they are being excoriated. It is not to some stupid puppet government over there. It is not to the Afrikaners regime. We have no loyalty to them. We have no loyalty to South Africa, to South Africans. And the fact of the matter is we, I mean, I listen to this rationale, first of all. It is the leaders of South Africa and their people, black and white, who have the majority responsibility. They must rise to it. Well, they are rising to it. They're rising to it. The only thing left available with that repulsive, repugnant regime of Afrikaners there. And it's the only way they have. They've tried everything for the last 20 years. They begged, they borrowed, they crawled. And now they're taking up arms. The second thing, progress toward peace requires a timetable. Timetable, elimination of a part. What's our timetable? What are we saying to that repugnant regime? Are we saying you've got 20 days, 20 months, 20 years? We ask them to put up a timetable. What's our timetable? These people are being crushed. And we're sitting here with the same kind of rhetoric, the same thing we heard. We heard, go slow. We heard, we have to take care of the problem afterwards. We heard, we you can't have, impose. You, you are totally misconstruing the testimony my... that I gave. Read first. Furthermore, Senator, let me say that I hate to hear a senator of the United States calling for violence. I'm not calling That's for violence. That's what you're doing. I hate that is to hear. Exactly what you're I doing. hate to hear an administration and a secretary of state refusing to act on a morally abhorrent point. I hate to hear this country. I'm ashamed that this country puts out a policy like this that says nothing, nothing. Okay, I, I just want to start on this, Harry. Um, that uh, look, I know enough about this issue that I can go into a long diatribe about the backstory of the Democrats and potentially even Joe Biden that could easily undercut some of what he's saying and show that they waffled too until they didn't could do all of that. But, you know, I do think that sometimes while I, I will not erase that history and I'm comfortable talking about it and it's important, there are rare moments where that's, that's, that's Joe Biden at his finest, right? It is. He, the, there's a passion to it. There's an earthiness 
there is a anybody can understand what he's saying there he says he's ashamed of his country and the administration for their policy on south africa he refers to it as an evil state basically this this and it was and he refuses to accept the justifications of go slow he hadn't always applied that to african-americans within our own brand of apartheid but i won't dismiss that i i mean if I want to feel good about Biden in the morning, if I want to feel hopeful of what he is capable of, I'd play that clip to myself. Call me a romantic. But I would. That's a hell of a speech. That's a hell of a floor speech about a moral issue that also had strategic issues. There was a lot of blowback to us, just like there is with our support for Israel. Got it. Super important. This was an ethical issue, first and foremost. And some things are, and some things are. And Biden was dead on that day, and he refused to back down. He was fairly systemic in his critique of American policy towards South Africa. He rejected the idea that we have to go slow. He said, we need to put some sort of timeline on this. We can't accept this any longer. And then when he's called out for inciting violence, because, you know, there was an armed wing of the uh, African National Congress and they did commit violence, but it paled in comparison to state violence, to state terror. And he refused to back down. He refused to fall into the Democrat dilemma of, oh, you know, we we, we're going to be looked at as, you know, we were either too soft or we're. Uh, we're supporting communist violence, right? The violence of the wrong side, because that's, of course, they called the South Africans and Reagan and such. They, they referred to them as, you know, communists, right? Because they did a lot of themselves and received, with the Cubans and they received a significant amount of help from the Soviet Union. But, uh, you know, you take help where you can get it when you live under the heel of an authoritarian racist regime. I mean, that's what you do. There wasn't any arms coming. There weren't any soldiers coming. From Uncle Sam, the beacon of democracy. They were coming from Havana. The Cubans lost thousands of soldiers fighting apartheid. And so, you know, he refused to back down, though, Biden. He said, like, no, I'm not inciting violence, but I'm not even going to accept your argument that by criticizing this moral abhorrency of an apartheid white regime, and he calls it like a, he says white, right? Like he calls it out for its whiteness, its dedication to political whiteness, I mean. That's um, that's 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 Biden in his finest form, and if we got ten percent of that, if if he was that guy ten percent of the time in his career or today, um, I'll vote for that guy, right? Um, and of course, there's a complicated uh, epilogue to that or coda but uh henry henry am i being too uh, flighty and romantic and positive on biden i'm sure i'll hear some hate from uh from you know the the left on this one or the far left i guess if there's such a thing no i i i think you have it right um as as you said i wish that joe's um passion and and the tenacity that he makes this speech could have been, as you said, applied to African-Americans. I wish it could have been uh, applied to um, dead and wounded Iraqis, um, dead and uh, wounded uh, Yemenis. That's a 
that was something that began at the tail end of the Obama administration. I wish that this glimmer, and it, it's very real, but it, I, it, it's, it's a glimmer, um, was a bigger part of his overall policies. And, and as you said, you know, if, if we could get 10%, that would be something. That would be, you know, and because he is, you know, you know, shoot from the hip kind of guy, there may be some moments that we'll get to see this. There may be some moments where Uncle Joe really pushes back. I'm not expecting it. I'm not counting on it. But we may see some of it because this came from somewhere. The, the, the you know, that, that I, he didn't, I, I don't. Um, he wasn't reading off a teleprompter there. That was Joe Biden un, unchecked. Um, and I hope that we see more of it. I really do. And if he could just, if he could just keep his mouth shut and quit telling lies, you know, he, he has a pathological streak of lying, right, from his law school and oh, yes. days. And we, we can't even get into all of it. If we could do a whole show on Biden lies, and some people say, well, what about Trump's lies? Like, Trump's lies are worse, or there, at least there's more, right? I don't even know what worse is when you're both pathological. But Trump's lies have generally been in the interest of more evil, mostly, although that's hard to even say. You know what? I take that back because Trump doesn't have an Iraq on his conscience but trump's a freaking he's a ghoul i mean he's a disease he's a symptom of a disease but you know i don't think that we should not talk about his lies but we're not going to do a biden just a biden lying show although we talked a lot about it but biden of course you know several times in his career and even recently says he just tells a frank lie that's that's been disputed by the ambassador on the ground who was supposedly involved he said i went to robin island and i visited mandela when he was in prison and this whole yarn of, you know, like getting arrested, trying to do it, or he tried to do it and he got arrested. And it's like, none of that happened. None of that happened. Joe, you could have just ran on that speech. Like, in other words, if you wanted to talk about South Africa to, to, to burnish your racial credentials, which are weak as hell, as we're going to see in a second. Um, why, why did you have to fabricate something that becomes the story i'll ask you this how many americans have heard that speech that was really a great glimmer glimmer indeed but a great one i think versus how many americans have heard that you know biden fabricated a ludicrous lie about getting arrested trying to see mandela it's a staggering disparity almost no american knows that speech that we played and i'm glad we did and i stand by it really we've gone we've been hard on him Right. So I stand by the use. Um, that's what happens. Right. You, the the substance gets lost in the ludicrous lie, which is is wrong and, 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 and is instructive. And I, I mean, I'm not minimizing the lie, but yeah, very few people have heard it. And then, and then what you mentioned and we're going to see in the next clip is that he didn't necessarily apply that to uh what he was saying the justice for the south african african uh, blacks uh, he he didn't apply that to american uh american african americans and he's he's really had a rough record there we're going to see two quick clips on that but also on uh brown and black victims uh of american imperialism elsewhere 
And so that's the rough patch. And it's a big one. It's in fact, like you kind of mentioned, and you could argue the anomaly is the speech that we like so much, you know, that I'm so inclined towards that. That really does give me a little bit of a chill. I'm not going to lie. Right. I like speech. I like rhetoric when it's good, when it's effective. Um, but that is the exception, unfortunately. And we're going to see that empire comes home in the form of racialized policing, treating communities of color and marginalized communities of other sorts as occupied territory uh, in the militarization of the police and the George Floyd protests that have you know, captured the national attention mid COVID and polarized everybody and, and really put our, our country in a very dangerous and precarious situation with the militias and the militarization of the citizenry and the collusion with the security forces, which has Northern Ireland and South Africa level feels. Okay. Local law enforcement is very inclined in many cases to support and even champion the militias and see them as allies, vague allies, problematic ones, uncomfortable ones sometimes, but they're clearly more, I mean, just look at that video of the water bottles being thrown in Kenosha, right? For, to, to Kyle Rittenhouse before he goes, shoots up a bunch of folks. Um, this is scary stuff. And we just have to remember that it, Biden's not a champion on race at home. And so, you know, let's jump quickly into uh, his talk about uh, busing and Klan-inflected <laughs> uh, segregationists, arch-segregationist senators from the South. And, and then after that, a bit on his, again, championing, shepherding of the 94, I believe, crime bill under the Clinton administration, which set the stage, set the stage, set the plate for the modern debate i mean slavery said it but the, the modern stage has been set for the protests in the street against systemic racism and police brutality and police militarization by biden okay so uh, while certainly trump is <laughs> the the arch enemy in many cases of all things that aren't white um you know uh the, we have to remember that biden's record did not follow the rhetoric of south africa in the united states Well, Amy, the most troubling point from my point of view, um, and this is a point that most of the mainstream media has completely dodged or missed, is that, um, you know, Joe Biden didn't simply reach out in consensus, um, some kind of civility to um, these southern racist senators. Um, it wasn't hard for him to reach out because he shared their views in the first place. He didn't just uh, support um, legislation introduced by uh, James Eastland, uh, Jesse Helms. He thanked them for supporting his legislation and his own anti-busing legislation. He called busing asinine. And, um, you know, and more than and, and, and worse than that, uh, at one point, he even he even came to the point of saying, I want to get his words exact, uh, of saying, um, I've gotten to the point where I think our only recourse to eliminate busing is a constitutional amendment. Uh, just stunning words. Uh, last week, he said he has no apologies. Um, and uh, the media 
you know, has quoted him repeatedly saying, um, you know, I've been involved with civil rights my whole career. But this is simply, um, I, don't, I don't know how to word this politely, but this is simply not the truth. Um, to the extent that he's been involved with civil rights, it hasn't been as an, an advocate. It's been as an opponent. Well, I mean, that's the whole point, right? That so often Joe Biden talks about kind of launching his career from within the black church, talking about some marches he was on that he wasn't in Delaware. Remember, Delaware is uh, the most, is like, they say this about the city of Louisville, but I, I think Delaware actually takes the cake geographically. But like in some ways, Delaware is the most northern southern state and also the most southern northern state, right? It's a hybrid state. But Delaware was among the last group of states that got rid of slavery. Slavery was legal in Delaware after it was de facto legal in Georgia, right? Because the border states that stuck with the Union were not affected by the Emancipation Proclamation. So there was slavery in Delaware. There was segregation in Delaware. Um, Biden is elected in, uh, I believe, 72, uh, you know, as a as a reaction candidate, a, a new Democrat, the, the the early wave of the new Democrats that would eventually put Clinton in power. Uh, the, these were folks who were uh, they rejected busing. They rejected uh, liberal social engineering, as it was called at that time. And they were uh, sort of a reaction to if not a rejection, a reaction to attacking towards the center or towards the right, actually, uh, on race. Okay, in the in the wake of the civil rights movement, so you know Joe's just been a liar about this, right? And uh, and he worked uh, happily. He loves personal relationships. Uh, he'll make them with anybody that's nice to him, and that he kind of jives with in a social way. Uh, and then they'll work together politically, and that has included people like Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms. And uh, I mean, these are these these are the these are the most abhorrent senators in modern American history. And. Remember what I said about the cabal, the clique, the polite establishment that they won't reject. They won't cancel them. There's no cancel culture for that, right? George W. Bush doesn't get cancel culture. Interesting. Nope. Uh, the Kamala Harris pick for vice president is instructive in that way, too. Because when Kamala Harris sought to make a name for herself, when she wasn't polling all that well, right, in the Democratic primaries, she thought, and it was correct of her to do, but she thought that there was a lot to be gained by attacking Biden on busing. And she said, I was that little girl who was bust. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Of course, we could always talk about Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor and how she was a great enemy to people of color. But nevertheless, this was the move she made. And she wasn't wrong in what she said. And Biden didn't like it. And they had a nice little, like, uh, a testy back and forth. And it made waves for a few days in the media. And then Biden selects her, huh? her, uh, who attacked him mightily. And she accepted she had essentially called him a racist, right, in the primary debates. And he selects her and she accepts because they're part of the same team. They're part of the same team. They will go work for the same think tanks when it's all over. They will go through the same revolving door. There'll be a doorman there saying, oh, hello, Mr. Biden. Uh, hello, uh, Ms. Harris. Uh, please come right through. You get to come in, not the people on Main Street that you say you champion, right? So this is, this is an instructive point. And um, – has Biden evolved, as Obama would say, about his positions on like gay marriage? Uh, probably. Has he evolved one-tenth as much as he needs to? Is he the future of 
racial uh, reconciliation, which is a problematic word. Is he the future of racial justice? Is he going to be the champion for that the way he was the champion for the Iraq war? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. And the evisceration of busing as a program and a concept ensured that there would never be real integration. Now, busing was used very ineffectively, even by the liberals who championed it. Right? They didn't actually want their kids in the deep suburbs, the wealthy suburbs, to be interacting and mixing. They didn't want real busing that would really mix class as well as race. And so part of the reason there's blowback for busing in the 1970s in Boston, where it was most famous, if you ever want to go and see the most angry, uh, extreme version of street uh, white people, uh, you don't need to go to Alabama, go to Philadelphia or Boston, okay? Anybody who's been there can tell you that. So what do they do? They take poor kids from Southie who are white and they interact with black poor kids from Roxbury and then they fight and then the white parents try to impale an African-American man uh, with an American flag in a very famous photo. But the reason that happened, this is not a, excusing the behavior of the white poor, is because it was a poor people's busing and, inter and, uh, and integration, with a few exceptions. Charlotte did a pretty good job for a while. Uh, actually, the southern cities did better with busing than the northern cities. Interesting point. But, you know, I mean, just the point here is busing was ineffective in its application, but the concept was necessity. Necessity. There's going to be discomfort if you want true integration, if you want to truly destroy apartheid, both in its de jure and its de facto ways, then you must have some sort of busing. And Joe Biden was one of the key people making sure, mischaracterizing it as asinine, throwing the baby of busing out with the bathwater of the improper early implementation that uh, ignored class and pitted poor whites against poor blacks the same way that we were that that the confederacy and the north maintained the loyalty of white poor people by scaring them up and making them uh in, you know making them compete with poor black people for jobs my family is that kind of racist to the extent that they're racist my family is that kind of uh uh right-wing populist they're the kind that says Oh, like, why do we have to compete with these people for resources? Why is the government backing them? Well, Biden helped create that narrative, and he rode that thing straight to the Senate, and he rode that thing to important committee assignments because this is a very anachronistic, seniority-based U.S. Senate that is not very democratic once people get to the Senate. And if you want to rise in the seniority system, you had better make friends with Eastland and Thurmond and Jesse Helms, because in the solid South, where there is no Republican Party until the 1970s, there was no competitive election. So those senators stayed in power for 30, 40, 50 years. They never even really had opponents most of the time. They ran uncontested. And so if it's a seniority-based system, there's going to be more of a Southern Democrat dominance in the committee assignments. And if you're an up-and-coming Joe Biden from the most northern southern state and the most southern northern state named Delaware, that's the fastest way to leadership if you have aspirations. So, yeah, we got to keep that in mind, that if Biden is going to be a champion for racial justice, he's not. Um, but if he's going to improve and evolve, then um, he's going to have to reject a lot of 
his own record and positions on all of this. I don't know that he will. All right. Last last clip for today on uh, on the ninety four crime bill. Let me tell you what is in the bill, and I'll let you all decide whether or not this is weak. Let me get down here a compendium of the things that are in the bill. One, the death penalty. It provides 53 death penalty offenses, weak as can be, you know? We do everything but hang people for jaywalking in this bill. That's weak stuff. I mean, (laughs) I know what he's trying to do there in terms of, like, literary and rhetorical tools. You know, that's the kind of speeches he likes to give, biting, a little bit sarcastic. You know, it's effective. Um, I use it. Except he is on the wrong side of an issue and he's bragging about how tough he is. And what I'm trying to say is that the Democrats dilemma of toughness applies at home as much as it does abroad. And so the war in our streets, the war on people of color, right. Which has been manifested in the war on drugs, which is a war on people of color. Oh, it was a class war as well especially a war, racial war, though, if you look at the disparity in sentencing between cocaine and crack. But that war at home also has its own democratic dilemma where the Democrats have to look tougher. And again, be, they got to be more racist than strong, right? They got to be more Catholic than the Pope. And, uh, you know, Biden is playing again as the reaction candidate because the Democrats have been losing election after election uh, because the American people, the American white, middle and lower class had turned against civil rights. And so it was a, it was a toxic issue. And so the Democrats, they, they ditched their principles to the extent that they ever had them. Uh, they ditched that, that leftward turn that did occur in the late sixties and they reacted against uh, civil rights. And so they couldn't say that we're against civil rights or civil rights act, but they, you know, came up with these other ways to basically put African-Americans back in their box. And it's a box of poverty and ghettoization and apartheid. And so one of the ways that was done was through criminalizing black behaviors, basically not on, not dissimilar to the slave codes that cropped up after slavery was made illegal in the 1860s and 70s Reconstruction South, right? So uh, we can't make you be a slave, but we can make convict labor, uh, which is slavery, uh, a, cr- you know, a, a punishment for even the lowest crime, including jaywalking, Joe, right? Being out after dark, gathering with more than three people, loitering. Right. These are the kind of things in the slave codes. This was a modern this was a modern slave code. The crime bill was the war on drugs was. And we have to keep that in mind. And so uh, what Joe's here is he is manifesting the Democratic dilemma. And the Democrat dilemma is the reason that I am very skeptical of lesser evil voting. It doesn't mean that I reject people who do it and it doesn't even mean that I think it's wrong necessarily in this case. What it means is that when you have this profound conceptual philosophical Democrat dilemma, I have to wonder if what we're not voting for is somebody who's going to feel through their insecurity that they have to, you know, out racist the, you know, the Stroms or, you know, out tough the Hawks. And so this is a pretty disturbing stuff. And it, it is involved with Hillary Clinton, who 
referred to a young teenage, uh, mostly adolescent, actually, in many cases, 13, 14 years old, African-American boys as super predators um, based on an academic article that was uh, found to be largely rejected by the consensus and just wrong on all the merits um, that drove a lot of this. And so in many cases, it was the Democrats who were pushing for a harder crime bill and bragging about how hard it was. I mean, if I had to encapsulate the Democrat dilemma on domestic policy, I guess it would have to be that Biden speech where he's bragging sarcastically about how tough it is. And um, this is not long after Governor Clinton, Bill, put to, get, put to death uh, um, uh, uh, um, a mentally challenged beyond even the most, I mean, seriously, seriously uh, mentally challenged and disturbed man, Ricky Ray Rector, who was a murderer uh, or a convicted one, uh, to death during he flew home to Arkansas to oversee the execution as if he was the one putting the needle in the army he had to be there. It was symbolic. It was cosmetic. It was a statement that I'm tough on crime. Uh, to me, that was actually the main point where you should know that Bill Clinton is a monster. Right. But that was the very and Christopher Hitchens wrote a lot about that at the time and nobody wanted to listen. But uh, yeah, so I think this is Joe. Uh, in line with both the Clintons and much of the Democrat establishment in trying to be tougher on crime and therefore tougher in the backlash against civil rights than the Republicans. And let's just pray that we're not voting for another walking Democrat dilemma and that he has evolved on these issues. Now, I'm not going to put my hope in that. I'm going to put my hope in the people in the streets, the rank and file Americans who are increasingly inclined to agree with us on these issues and oppose what Joe stood for most of his career, that they are going to be the ones that hold him accountable and force him some degree to evolve to the left. I'm not going to just put my hope in his good graces, um, but I hope he has those too. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. It's a, it's a hard place to be in. Um, I think voting for any president because it ultimately comes down to deciding ostensibly who's the lesser of two evils. And well, it depends on what evils are most important to people as a person. You know, it's not, I don't know that it's inherently political, um, but looking at the state of America today, as it is after four years of Donald Trump, the I, I think that the the distance between the lesser of these two evils is is more stark than it usually is. And I know as a as a white guy, I I cannot always take my lived experiences as the lived experiences of everyone else. That being said, voting is inherently personal. So, I think uh, I think it's pretty clear who uh, Danny and I will probably be, be voting for. But that's not um, it's not a vote of hopefulness, as it might have been for somebody like Bernie. It is uh, a die in the wolf vote for the lesser of two evils. And we want to hear about it. We want to hear from you guys on, on, you know, what you thought about, you know, this, this is a very polarizing episode. 
Um, but I'm, I'm certain that there are things that we brought up that if you, if you didn't know about him, you probably didn't know as much. Um, and he needs, we have to keep our leader's feet to the fire. So if in the next week we find out that Joe Biden will be the next president, that means the left has to be on as critical of him as the left has been of Donald Trump. Um, because they're they're not that far apart, you know. They, they, um, what happened with Glenn Greenwald and the Intercept is very informative of the time we're living in, and we need to keep that in mind. That uh, cancel culture shouldn't be for things that we just find unpleasant or disagreeable, because in in a variety of different ways, we just lead to censorship. So, Danny, what what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I think we've said a we've said enough. We've we've said a lot on this, and um, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I, I, my decision not to come out and like straight up endorse a candidate is driven by the fact that I don't think that that's my platform, and also that I don't feel that it's my place. But I agree that the problem with lesser of two evils is that sometimes there really is a serious disparity. Sometimes the one evil really is that much worse. And this might be one of those cases. And I very much want to reject Biden wholesale. Um, and I'm not certain that I can fully do that. I'm not going to endorse him. No one cares what I endorse anyway. Um, and nor should they, but I will say this. Uh, I would really like to see the, the left or the progressives do two things. I would like to see them come together to demand with their feet and their bodies uh, that, that Biden become more progressive, that he take better stance on domestic policies and especially on war policy. And I would like them to not cancel one another. Okay. There is a time for purity tests. They're rare. Apartheid would be one, but the, but the, for the most part, they can be really toxic. And I think that this is such a polarizing thing. And this is such a hard call. This is a really hard call. Um, not necessarily about whether Biden or Trump is worse. I think that's clear. But it, it's a tough thing because we've been asked to do this less than evil so many times. And so what I'm saying is I, I, I'm not going to disown somebody on the left who is – in the tank, look, we got to do Biden. And I'm not going to disown anybody who says, look, I just can't do it. I just can't vote for Biden. And, you know, there's there's that speech that was like kind of cliche ridden and has been has been, you know, attacked a lot of times by the left and the right by Obama when he was talking about his Jeremiah Wright, that like preacher of his who said some radical things. And he said, I can no more disown him than I can disown the black community. And I can no more disown him than I can my white grandmother, right, who helped raise me and was a little bit racist, right? Now, there's problems in that speech, but it was also considered one of his better ones. And I feel that way about people on both sides of this issue within the left at the ground level for personal friends, and then also some people that I've grown to be close with professionally, and to some extent, friends uh in the the more prominent intellectual left and so what i'm saying is if you think this is a hard and shut case remember that you know uh chris hedges is on the opposite side of cornell west his dear friend and chomsky who he has like 
looked up to and and respected and been on the same side of the issue with so many times. Look, this is a real division. There are some tough choices to be made. Um, I will where where I'll go is I will say I don't want Donald Trump to be president on January twentieth, and I don't want him to be president ever. And I didn't want Joe Biden. Uh, and I hope that with a president Joe Biden, that he is more movable and less violent than a president Donald Trump, that he is more movable by feet in the street to do better. I don't think he's ever going to be a, the leader we need for the moment, but he can do better maybe than a Trump. And he is less likely to call out his goons and his goons are less likely to have guns, rifles. And so that's my position on it. But I, I'm not going to disown somebody who says they can't vote for Biden. And I'm not going to disown somebody who, for principled reasons, says that we absolutely have to. Um, this battle is going to happen on Tuesday, and the battle may go into the streets if it's contested. But if it doesn't, this battle really kind of needs to end inside the left, um, at least needs to come together in a feet to the fire, beat the street, do something about it. When Biden gets elected, we can't lose the energy. That's the worst thing we can do, because if we do that, we sanction lesser evil voting for the end of time. And we sanction the duopoly until the end of time. And we sanction the status quo. And so tough episode, tough issue. Don't forget that people that you respect on the left are on opposite sides of this issue and you can't disown them. We're going to need each other, maybe in the streets after this election, and we're definitely going to need each other in late january so definitely weigh in send us notes i got enough hate mail sure henry does too that we can take it but send us you know send us collegial notes and disagree with us and let's continue the conversation and maybe we do a follow-on episode where we answer some mail from social media and from email of listeners uh where we can do a post-election take on this this episode we did here and what we do now and answer some of your questions so uh Tough times ahead. Uh, stay strong and take care of yourselves out there. And uh, a lot more to follow from us. Great guests and more commentary. Thanks. Thanks, guys. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill. And also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www. Dot fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher Google Podcasts, Patreon Spotify, you name it almost anywhere you listen we're already waiting for you and hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal, the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope.